Psalm 69. I'd like to read through the first 21 verses here tonight. We began looking at this psalm, really the first five verses or so. But uh, we'll get further into the psalm tonight. This is uh, my Bible. It says a cry of distress and imprecation, which is a calling down of God's judgment upon adversaries. It is a song. You can imagine it being a minor key based on the contents of the psalm. For the choir director, according to Shoshanim, uh, musical notation there, and then this is a psalm of David. But we looked at, and the last time we looked at it, all the texts in this psalm that point to Christ. This is a Christological psalm. doesn't mean that every single statement is applied to Christ, and it doesn't mean that none of it applies to David alone. David would be a type as a king and a prophet, and some believe even a priest, but David was a type of the, uh, the Messiah as king. So he's crying out here for salvation. Look at verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying, my throat is parched, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire, and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And this is God's word. May we receive its instruction and encouragement tonight. So we began looking at the prayer at the beginning of this chapter. This is a cry in distress. 
the distress that the psalmist here describes, David describes, he gives images in the first few verses of waters, mire, deep waters, a flood that overflows him. Describes his physical circumstance that he's been crying out and he's so tired. Verse 3, because of that, his throat is parched. The idea is hoarse because of all the crying out and even his eyes are failing him. He's been looking for the relief of salvation, but he's not seeing it come and he's weary. And the circumstances are not literally mire or not literally waters or a flood. It has to do with his enemies. It has to do with those who are surrounding him. Verse 4, who hate him, and they are many. They're more than the hairs of his head. They are powerful, verse 4. They are wrongfully his enemies, and they're calling for him unjustly to right wrongs that he did not do. Now, verse 5, as you look at this psalm and you know that it's a psalm of David, but it's applied to Christ, verse 5 presents somewhat of a problem especially for commentators who are trying to see every single verse as applied to Christ. Now, I would suggest that this is David who is speaking in verse 5. But as David speaks, he is claiming innocence with regard to what he is facing. Not innocence entirely, but innocence in terms of what is taking place in his life, the pressure that is coming upon him. Why do I say that? Uh, Because as he continues to argue for God's compassion, asking God to show him compassion, and that I would say is a major theme in this section, we've got the cry in distress. Now this is a call for compassion. It's a call for God to show him compassion. But this call for compassion, the compassion of God, comes as he is serving God and doing what God desires. If he is speaking for himself, and I believe that he is in verse 5, whatever he has done, it doesn't apply to what is taking place with this persecution and his enemies. Notice in verse 5 it says, O God, it is you who knows my folly. And so he's just confessing, God, you know. And if you trace down that word folly, it does have to do with foolishness, actual sinful foolishness. The, uh, the thought or the devising of folly is sin. And so this is not something that is just kind of a word that could be neutral. And when it says my wrongs, uh, that's a word that refers to guilt, which is the state of having committed an offense. So David is saying in verse 5 that God knows his folly, that his guilt, or notice it's plural, the reasons for his guiltiness are not hidden from God. God knows them. And so this is certainly a prayer of 
confession in one sense, but as he continues, again, the focus is not so much on what he has done that has brought this upon him, but of the enemies and the adversaries that are coming and uh, doing what they're doing against him because he represents God. Okay, before we move on, I just want to reference the teaching of this verse. This is a verse that teaches us that God knows us. He knows our foolishness. He knows our lack of wisdom and our pursuit of the wrong way. Now, other people might not, but God knows, and we would do well to admit and acknowledge to God that he knows that, to try to deceive ourselves or delude ourselves into thinking that God doesn't know is folly itself. What does he say? My wrongs are not hidden from you. Do you think that your guilt is somehow hidden from God? That somehow he doesn't see what you have done? Again, hidden from others, perhaps, but God knows. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, as God is being lifted up and exalted by the prophet, the Lord himself is speaking In Isaiah's prophecy, he says, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. So when you think about the knowledge of God extended to the universe outside of this earth, the stars that he has made, the knowledge of every single one of them, not only sustaining them by his power, but he's got names for them. And the next question of the prophet, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Why do you say that? It's such foolishness to say. That God doesn't know everything. Nothing is hidden from God. Adam and Eve could not hide from God. Achan thought his sin was hidden. David thought for a period of time that his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder was hidden. Ananias and Sapphira thought that their plan was hidden. But God, Psalm 44, verse 21, knows the secrets of the heart. And so we best be honest with the Lord. Oh God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. It's really the beginning of a confession of sin. He knows. And I don't know if that verse comes to you even tonight where there's something in your life which maybe has been hidden from others. Maybe it's not. Maybe you think it is, but it's not. But whatever the case, if God knows it, you need to deal with it. You need to confess it. You need to forsake it. If you seek to walk with God, it is a daily, forgive us for our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. It is confessing and forsaking, as the proverb says, so that we will find mercy 
but the one who conceals their sins will not prosper. But again, as David prays here, he is describing his distress in verses 1 through 4. In verse 5, he is declaring that God knows his moral life. He's pleading that God knows his life. But that does not seem to be, as he continues, the cause of all of this circumstance that he's going through. So if you try to apply that verse, verse 5, to the Messiah, of course Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He never did anything that was worthy of guilt. So this is David talking. But even as he says it, as he continues, the focus is on what he's doing in devotion to God that is bringing reproach on him. And in verse 6, he's pleading that he might not be the cause of shame or dishonor to others. Notice that. He says, may those who wait for you, that is those who have faith in God, they're waiting upon God, trusting in God by waiting for God, may those not be ashamed through me. And then in a synonymous parallelism, may those who seek you not be dishonored through me. So synonymous parallelism, he's saying uh, the same thing in a different way to draw attention to his, the significance of this prayer as he speaks to, and notice the two different titles of address. One is, O Adonai, Yahweh of hosts. O Lord God of hosts. Uh, God is in all caps in the New American Standard. This is one of those times where you have those two words together, Adonai and Yahweh. If they were both translated Lord like they usually are, it'd be a little strange. And so translators have done it that way. But that title of God is the title that indicates his sovereignty, not only his sovereignty over all creation, but specifically the hosts the armies, and whether that's his own armies on earth, Israel, or the armies of heaven, which I think naturally you would expect that to refer to when it speaks of God, it's God who is omnipotent with his armies. It is a strong emphasis on the sovereignty, the omnipotence of God. So when you call upon Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, you're calling upon the one who has all of those angels at his disposal, who can send them forth to accomplish his bidding. And of course, if he's omnipotent, does he need them? No, but he does command them, and they follow his will, and they do what he says. But the appeal here is for those who are, in a sense, looking on at his experience that they would not be dishonored by him. I would put it this way. He's asking that his case, his circumstance, that those who are looking on might not use his case as a basis that God does not care for or love his own. In other words, he's asking for God to intervene. Another way of saying is, God, act on my behalf so that they who, 
who trust in you will be encouraged so that they will have reason to rejoice. He doesn't want to be a case where those looking on would be dishonored. You know, David was in that circumstance and the Lord didn't deliver him. No, he wants it to be the opposite. And so it's a, it's a way in which he calls upon God to act. But look at verse 7. Okay? Keep in mind what we looked at in verse 5. He, he, he says, God knows my folly. He knows my wrongs. And, and don't let me be the case that others are discouraged about. Verse 7, because for your sake I have borne reproach. And notice, it doesn't only stop there. Look down at verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. We'll consider these, but when you think about what David is saying here, he is calling attention to the fact that he is devoted to the Lord, and as a result of his devotion to the Lord, he is being mistreated. It's not because of his sin. He is being shown disrespect, open disrespect. That's how you could understand the word reproach there. We don't use that word on a regular basis, perhaps, it's certainly uh, all over the scriptures. The idea is insults or open contempt or open disrespect. So David is saying, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Why has dishonor covered David's face? It's not because of something David did. His appeal in the sight of God, in verse 5, he says, God knows my folly, he knows my wrongs, but in this case, what is going on is because of my relationship to you. Because of your sake, I'm bearing reproach. So his pleading for God to deliver him has to do with he's representing God. And he's being treated this way. And he's got enemies. And this does remind us, doesn't it, that if you follow God, if you walk with God, if you speak for God, if you represent God, it will invite the hatred of the world. It will invite the hatred of the world. It will invite the envy of the world if you try to live a righteous life. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because Abel's works were righteous. Cain's weren't. And that was a conviction to him. That bothered him. And so here you have David pleading that the circumstances that he is in has to do with his obeying God, representing God, the dishonor, the shame, the open disrespect was because of that. Look at verse 8. He also laments his circumstances that have separated him from his family. Now, we don't have a particular circumstance in David's life to point to here. Uh, we know David had enemies throughout his life as he had a public life. And by that I mean when he went into Saul's army, when he... Uh, 
invited by his success, the envy of Saul. He had enemies on the side of Israel. He also had foreign enemies. And then as he eventually navigated through that time and became king, he also had enemies. He had enemies within, enemies without. Verse 8, when it says, I become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons, there certainly were times in David's life where it was dangerous to be around David because he was viewed as a fugitive. He was viewed as a rebel to the state, an enemy of the state. As he went into Philistine territory, but he was still acting on Israel's behalf. Many in Israel didn't know that, and Saul was portraying David to be a defector, a problem. And so you can imagine even his own family during that time would have found it difficult to associate with him because of the guilt by association. If you're aiding uh, some fugitive, if you're aiding someone who is against the king, then you could be guilty as well. Job, in his words in Job 19, describes the reproach that even just his suffering brought upon him. Remember all the things that happened to Job, Job chapter 1? His children, all the loss of wealth and eventually the loss of his health as well. And the result was, of course, his friends thought he's being disciplined by God and they're distancing, at least they're saying, this is God who's doing this and why don't you deal with this, Job? And Job says, he has removed my brothers far from me. My acquaintances are are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed and my intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I don't want to get too close to that guy. He's got all sorts of issues. He's under the judgment of God, is the thought. But David here says, I've become estranged from my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. Now, if you look at the life of Jesus, did that ever happen? Remember in John 7 that his brothers did not even believe in him, the scripture says. They were giving him counsel and advice. If you do these things, you do these miracles, why don't you show yourselves to the world? And John's comment in that passage is, for not even his brothers believed on him. And of course, as he's saying and doing what he's doing, you can imagine if his brothers didn't believe on him, walking away from certain things that Jesus said, thinking, what in the world is he thinking? Because they didn't believe. They didn't know the truth. Now eventually, praise the Lord, his brother James uh, came to Christ. He's the, letter, the one who wrote the letter in the New Testament. But we, we, we certainly have uh, in the Gospels a recollection of the reality that Jesus, as he represented God, stood for God, spoke for God, it resulted in a distance between himself and his own family. But there's more. Look at verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, if you look at the next few verses, zeal for God's house, weeping, verse 10, with fasting, and sackcloth, which was associated with sorrow. 
these are three, you might say, religious activities. Zeal being the attitude of his heart, but then weeping with fasting, even that emotion connected with fasting, and then sackcloth. As I studied uh, David's life in connection with fasting and sackcloth in particular, there are instances where we can see David wearing sackcloth and we can see David fasting. I would suggest we don't have all of the circumstances in David's life where he did that. You can study it out. He was wearing sackcloth when Bathsheba bore this child and he's not sure what the Lord is going to do. He's pleading for mercy. He's, uh, excuse me, he's fasting when that happens. He's wearing sackcloth when God is judging the nation after he numbered the people. There also are psalms like Psalm 35, which testify to the fact that David fasted when his enemy was sick. So when his enemy is sick, David is loving his enemy and he's actually praying for his enemy. That seems to be Saul based on what I can tell. But you can imagine how strange that would be to David's fellow soldiers and those who followed him. This is your enemy. How could you do that? But David regarded that as a righteous thing, something that was right to do because he was not a rebel. He was not treacherous in his heart. Well, let's go back to verse 9 because in addition to those things, there's also this zeal for God's house. When you look at David's life, and I mean his whole life, can you see his zeal for God's house? You have to kind of go through the part of his life where he's running from Saul and outside the nation, eventually becomes the king of Judah, then king of Israel as they made a covenant with him. But then when David, all of his enemies are dealt with, he has rest, he's built for himself a house, now what does he want to do? He wants to build a house for God. David also brought the ark into Jerusalem. As he brought the ark into Jerusalem, remember there was the time when Uzzah died. They put the ark aside, but David, after he realized that God was blessing that household, he said, let's get it, brought the ark of God into the city of David. And through his battles, the spoil from his battles was not merely to build up his own earthly house. If you read First Chronicles 22 through 29 and see the organization of David's kingdom, and you see what he did, he was actually preparing for Solomon to be able to build the temple. Much of the wealth that went into the implements, the walls, the decoration for the temple, even the plan, which I believe based on what is said there in First Chronicles, that David had the plan for that temple by the Spirit. So we tend to think of David as this warrior king, but obviously he is a warrior king who is also a worshipful king. And how many songs did he write in worship of his king? 
How much zeal did he have for the house of God? We just went through Psalm 68, which is this song of progression uh, as the ark comes from one location to another. David's heart for God, his passion, his zeal was for the worship of God. I believe that's part of the reason David was a man after God's own heart. Because David had a heart for God. God's desire is to exalt and glorify himself, rightly so. David had a heart for that as well. And God certainly blessed David and David's... How many psalms do we have? These are songs that are given to choir directors. And you look at David, not only did he do all of this, but he also organized choirs and singers. Uh, He was interested in making a big and great and beautiful sound about God so that all the people could hear not only the nation of Israel, but the nations. They could hear God of, of who this God is. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's David's heart. What does it say here in Psalm 69? Zeal for your house has consumed me. It has eaten me up. I like what J.C. Ryle says of zeal. And this is, I hope, a testimony to us of the significance of zeal and how zeal ought to have a place in our lives when it comes to our relationship to God, our service to God. Ryle says, zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do His will, and to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. It is a desire which no man feels by nature, which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when he's converted, but which some believers feel more strongly than others that they alone deserve to be called zealous Christians. Their desire is so strong when it really reigns in any man that it impels him to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to deny himself to any amount, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, to spend himself and be spent, and even to die if only he can please God and honor Christ. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing, It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He sees one thing, he cares for one thing, he lives for one thing, he is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he's rich or whether he's poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he's thought wise or whether he's thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For this, the zealous man, we could say, or woman, cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he is content. He feels that like a lamp, he's made to burn, and if consumed in burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. David's so zealous... When the ark of God is coming in, he forgets himself. He's dancing before the ark. He's rejoicing before the Lord with all of his might, the Bible says. And what happens? He walks into his house, and Michael says, you disgraced yourself before the maids. That wasn't David's thought that day. David's thought was for the Lord. 
That's who he was seeking to honor. Now, how did it affect Jesus? We tend to look at Jesus, don't we, as meek and mild? Someone who's doing good and healing? Imagine Jesus with a whip made of cords walking into the temple and saying, Get out of here! Pushing over tables. Tossing the money out of the way. That's enough. This is a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. And the disciples remembered later on that it was written of him. Do you look at the zeal of Christ to do the Father's will? The zeal of Christ to face those who refuse to believe and to still speak the truth to call down God's judgment upon them in woe after woe after woe in Matthew 23. And what did he face? Shame, spitting, eventually a brutal beating, crucifixion because he was zealous for God, because he was zealous for the truth. So David, I believe, this is his testimony. Zeal for your house has consumed me. There were things that happened because of David's zeal for God. And what it did was invited those who were looking on, who did not have zeal for God, to show him open disrespect. As he's fasting... That became something that people looked on and showed contempt for. As he's putting on sackcloth to show his mourning for some spiritual purpose, he becomes a proverb. That's the word byword. And in verse 12, he says, Those who sit in the gate talk about me. I am the song of drunkards. I think there's a a figure of speech here that actually kind of con- uh, collects everyone in the society from the highest to the lowest socially. Those who sit in the gate in the Old Testament are those who are ruling, leading judges. They're the ones who are they're making transactions in that place because there's where the judges sit and where they record those in the sight of The community, Lot sat in the gate, and what do they say about Lot? You're going to be a judge, Lot, because you're sitting in the gate. But David says in the end of the verse, I'm the song of the drunkards, those who are drinking strong drink, the ones who are in the gutter, so to speak. And all of them are either talking about him or singing about him in derision. And this is what he's feeling because of the sake of God. So just by way of application and really 
to lead into the next section. We're not going to get all the way into the next section, but what do you do when you're suffering reproach, disrespect, contempt for the sake of following God, representing God, doing what God wants? What do you do? Well, I love the way verse 13 starts. As for me. So all this is going on, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. Are you praying? Are you looking to the Lord? Are you finding your solace, your support, your help in God? In that time of distress, is He your dependence? In that time of trial, is he your trust? And in that time of peril, are you praying? What a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus went through this. If you're going through this, and Christians, if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. If you're going through this, You have someone who knows. He knows. And I'm not just talking about David. David knows. David can't do anything for you, but Christ can. He can sympathize with you, and he can provide grace for you, and it is infinite. And it's a steady supply all the time. Never going to fail you, ever. What does it say in verse 13? But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. And he pleads for compassion, not only based upon his circumstance, verses 5 through 12, but he pleads on the basis of God's great loving kindness. Notice that in verse 13. He says, O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. And down in verse 16, answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good according to the greatness of your compassion. Turn to me. So as we get into this section, we'll see the greatness of God's steadfast love, the greatness of his compassion towards us. And I love what one writer said, I think it was Matthew Henry, said, at this point in the psalm, he has started out with, okay, the flood's coming. But actually his head's above water. And he's able to cry and continue to cry because God is strengthening him and holding him up. And, of course, he's there for us, too. I don't know what you're going through, what your circumstance is, what your trial is right now, but what a friend you have in Jesus. All our, what does it say, our sins and griefs to bear. Sometimes we think Jesus only cares about our sins. I've got to deal with my sin. But Jesus cares about your griefs too. Things that cause you trouble in your soul. He knows every one of them. Pour them out to him. Look to him. Let's close tonight with hymn number 344. Stand with me and sing. Jesus, I come. 344.